God is just was saying over us. We are flower quickly fading. We are, like your word says, we're just a mist. We're just a vapor. As the psalmist says, who is man that you should care for him? But God, you care for us more than any other creature that you would send your only son to die for us. And I'm so grateful, God, that it does not depend on my goodness or my righteousness or anything that I bring to the table because I simply bring filthy rags to a holy God. And in your divine wisdom and your goodness and kindness to me, you take those filthy rags and you wash them in the blood of the Lamb and I come out as white as snow. And I'm grateful for that. I pray for that for us as your church, God, that we would constantly be reminded of your great goodness and kindness to us, your faithfulness to us. If all that we did was just come and sing that to you today, I pray that you would be glorified in our midst. But now, God, we come to your sacred word, the scriptures, and we ask that you, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would illuminate our minds and our eyes and our hearts to hear what You would have for us from Your Holy Word. And so God, I give You these next few moments and ask that You would do what only You can do, and that's continue to bring sanctification, justification into our lives. So lead us and guide us through this time in Your Word. We praise in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. If you haven't already, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. We will cover verses 10 through 32. Um, I will spare us from having to read all those names. I spared Jared from reading those names as well. I will cover some of those names, all the names I will not cover this morning. But before I jump into the passage, I do want to remind the men in the church this coming Saturday is a men's prayer breakfast. That's a time for us to come together to fellowship, to pray and ask and seek the Lord as we've been doing this year. We want God's favor to rest on us and the way we know to have God's favor to rest on us is come together and pray. And so we uh, are coming to do that Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. There is a sign-up sheet in the back. Uh, that is so that we know how much food to prepare, uh, prepare for. So please write your name if you're planning on coming. And uh, we will provide the rest. Let's jump into Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. Uh, Everything in the book of Genesis at this moment is about to change. We've been covering the first 11 chapters. Here's the interesting part about the book of Genesis. The first 11 chapters of Genesis cover close to 2,000 years. So in this small window, these few pages cover a large swath of time, but now here in Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 to 32, and therefore we will cover maybe about 400 years. So the first 11 chapters, 2,000 years, the last uh, few chapters only cover a short amount of time. And it starts with Father Abraham. I was going to have all the children come this morning and stand in front of us and sing the old song. Remember? Father Abraham had many sons. 
Oh, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. I get it gets a little confusing when you start shaking body parts. That's that's why I can't. I'm not a drummer, so like when I start shaking and singing, it kind of goes downhill uh, for me on that end. But we are we're going to begin to cover Abraham and the descendants after Abraham. Uh, we will cover for the rest of the chapter Abraham and his descendants. Most scholars say this about Abraham that apart from Christ. He might be the most important, significant person in all of the Bible. Because from Father Abraham, all the descendants from Father Abraham all the way to Christ kind of point us in one direction. And the direction that we know is this direction. It's found in Hebrews. where he, The author of Hebrews talks about Abraham. And this is what it says. This is what the writer of Hebrews says about Abraham. That it was for faith that he came to salvation. And so, Father Abraham is going to be our patriarch in so many ways, but the way and the main way he's our patriarch is he shows us what it means to have salvation by faith and faith alone. You see, it's from faith and faith alone that we come to know Christ Jesus. It's not a work, a works based of our own. It's simply, do we put our hope and faith in Christ? We'll see that in a few weeks when he does that with his Son Isaac. As many of you know the story about Isaac, he was the chosen son of Abraham that the line of Christ would come. And God said to Abraham, you've got to take your son, your only son, the chosen son, take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him to me. And there's these few words in that story they often get missed. He's, Abraham's talking to the servants that come with Isaac and Isaac's holding the the wood and getting all the preparation and Isaac asked the dad, hey, where's the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? Now, I can't wait to teach and preach that passage. I can't imagine what Abraham was thinking in that moment. Like, wait, like this kid isn't dumb. Like he obviously sees there's not a lamb and like, how am I going to pull this one off? But what he says in response to Isaac's question shows his extreme amount of faith. He basically says this, I don't know, but what I do know is this, that God will provide for us and we will come back. He uses the word we. We will return saying, I believe God has a plan because God always keeps His promises and His plans. Even in our finite minds, when we don't see what God is up to, God is not in, in, um, in the background scrambling to come up with plan B. He has always had a plan. And so we'll see that even in this text this morning. And so Abraham, the father, who we would believe to be a very important patriarch for us, will show us what it means to live by faith and faith alone. But how do we get here? How do we get to Genesis chapter 11, I just want to give a recap for us this morning as we head into the rest of this book of Genesis. Remember, chapter 1 and 2 were about the creation. From two different perspectives, or two angles, chapter 1 and chapter 2 is the creation story. Chapter 3 is about the fall. That God had a plan for mankind in chapter 1 and chapter 2. The plan was that they would be multiplied, that they would have dominion over all the, the earth, that they would 
be in right relationship with God all the time and be in relationship with themselves all the time and one and oneness. And, and then they begin to listen to another voice. I wonder for us this morning, church, how often God speaks to us and we don't listen to his voice and we listen to another voice and we experience the fall. But here's the great goodness of God. Even at the fall, he had a plan. A plan of redemption. It did not catch God by surprise the moment that Adam and Eve fell in the garden. They took and and disobeyed God. God then in Genesis chapter 3 says, but I still have a plan. My plan is always going to come forth. So he shows and maps out the plan of redemption. And then in chapter 4 through 11, we see the pattern of our lives through the pattern of the lives of those that came before us. That, That God has a plan. That God sets forth the plan, that man follows the plan, that man sins against the plan, and that God redeems the plan. And you see that over and over and over for the rest of the Bible. That's the plan of salvation. That's the plan of redemption. That's where we catch ourselves. And so, just briefly, this is what redemption means. This is not just our salvific redemption, that God had a plan to save you, but there's a there's an overarching redemption the redemption of a kingdom that's what god was doing in creation in chapter one and two he was establishing his kingdom and he gave his kingdomship over to mankind to rule and have dominion and to be fruitful and to multiply and at the fall that all crashes and burns and yet god still wants to redeem his plan for a kingdom a kingdom you have to have three things you don't have these three three things you don't have a kingdom you can't have two of the three you must have all three a kingdom is made up of this you have to have a king in order to have a kingdom or then you just have what the other two would be you you just have a land but you also have to have a people so a kingdom god's kingdom makes up three things a king a people and a land to dwell in And that's what God was saying to Adam. Hey, I want you to be the king over the land that I give you. That's the Garden of Eden. And I want you to make a people to become a kingdom, to be my kingdom. And we see that Adam and Eve failed miserably at that. But God said, no, no. My kingdom shall never pass away. Sound familiar? And so He reestablished His his kingdom through the line of, we saw last week, Noah. Noah, through Shem, is going to bring forth God's kingdom all the way to where the true king will come, Jesus Christ, and reign and call a people to himself and have a land to himself. We are the land. We're called the church. We are both the people and the land where our king is going to dwell. And that's the plan of redemption that God set forth way back in Genesis chapter 3, that he would establish his kingdom. And so now we see here that God in His goodness, His sovereignty, and His mercy is setting forth His kingdom again because He had already done that in chapter 5, remember, with that first genealogy. Genealogies point to us, if you ever wondered, hey, why are genealogies in the Bible? Like They kind of take up space. There's kind of a lot of names that have a lot of numbers beside them. But the genealogies in the Bible are always pointing us back to God is established in His kingdom and the way that He establishes His kingdom 
is through His people. Through a promised people, a chosen people. And so every time you read a genealogy, it's to remind us of God's goodness of keeping to His promises that He'll establish a kingdom. So don't just run right past the genealogies that are in the Bible. Be reminded, this is God's way to establish His kingdom. And we see that here again in chapter 11. We saw it in chapter 10. We see it again here in chapter 11. God is going to establish His kingdom. God is going to remember His promises. Remember the promise came to Noah that said Noah had three sons. Remember those three sons. Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And then God said, hey, through Shem, I'm going to establish my kingdom. I'm going to fulfill my promise of a kingdom through this one man. And so He's going to show us how that's going to come about. And then He says in verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and he fathered and it goes on to a list of names, just some names to highlight in that long list. Shem would be the first one. I like that. In verse 16, the next one is this. Eber. Eber means this. The Hebrews. That's his name. It means Hebrews. So we see in the line of Shem, the Hebrew people already being established. Remember, the Hebrew people are God's chosen holy people throughout the Old Testament. That of all the races, of all the nations, that God sovereignly chose the Hebrews to make His presence known and felt and dwelt with. And it starts with that one man. The Shem, who fathered this man, who fathered this man, that finally fathered Eber. And then move down to the next one. Eber fathered this man. Peleg. Peleg fathered this man. So those are another name. We're going to start tracing it all the way so we get to one man. So underline that man in your Bible. But the next one is what Jared read to us, and I'll get to this in a moment. It's Terah. Terah who fathered Abraham. So this genealogy is winding us through. These men, broken, fallen men, to one man, Abraham, who we will pick up on for the next several months to walk and watch how God sovereignly walks us through all the way to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and finally to Christ some 2,000, 3,000 years after this takes place. But I want to spend most of our time this morning on the genealogy of Terah. Three things we see in this genealogy. Terah was the father of Abraham. We see that in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Circle the name Lot in your Bible. We'll get back to him. Remember Lot? He took Lot. That was his nephew. He took Lot into his family. And Lot took a wife. And they went into Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife is the one that God said, hey, just run and keep running. Don't ever look back. And Lot's wife did not believe in that truth of God. She turned around and poof, she was a pillar of salt. We'll come back to them in a few weeks. But it says this, He fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father in the land of his kindred. That means his family. And Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abra and Nahor took wives. And the name of Abram's wife was Sarah. And that was the name of, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milak. And the daughter of Haran, father Malak, and Iscah, 
and Sarah was barren and had no children. Underline that. Verse 30 in your Bible. We'll get to that. That's an important piece of this story. Terah took Abraham, his son, or Abram, his son, and Lot, the nephew, his grandson, and Sarah, and his daughter-in-law, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But basically they stopped and settled there. And then the father of Abraham died. He was 205 years old. Three things I want to point out about this genealogy that's so important. Because we could look at this and think, well, there's just some guys that had some guys that had some guys that settled in the land. I mean, what's the big deal about that? What does this show us about who God is? Three things this morning. I'll cover them extensively. The first one is this. God's sovereign plan of grace. I want to say this loud and clear. Abram did not choose God, but God chose Abram. See, God has a plan and a purpose for us. And it's a sovereign plan and a purpose. The word sovereignty simply means this. One that has all power and all control. So in your life and in my life, the first thing that we see is God has a sovereign grace or a sovereign plan for all of us. You see, that we could stop there and I could just preach for days and days and days and days on the sovereignty of God. You see, this is God having a plan for us, not us having a plan for God. How often in your life and in my life do I bring my plans to God without ever asking what God's plan is for my life? You see, when God steps in and He has a plan and a purpose for your life, He's going to make sure it is fulfilled. But so often in my life, I bring my plans before God and ask Him to bless them and fulfill them without ever taking into consideration His plan for my life. That's one aspect of God's sovereignty. The next aspect of God's sovereignty is this. That because God always has a God always has promises, those promises are only going to be fulfilled through his plan. He doesn't come up with plans and then fulfill promises. He has promises that are fulfilled through his plans. Do you see the difference? You see, God has made promises. The promise of God was found in Genesis chapter 3. Remember what it says in Genesis chapter 3. Let's turn over there just for a moment. This is the plan, the sovereign plan of God to bring redemption to mankind. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. God says this. God is speaking. He says, I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Satan. He's talking to Lucifer. He's talking to the evil one. He's talking to the one that they began to believe in rather than God. And he says to the enemy, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, the offspring that I promise you, will bruise your head and it shall bruise his heel. So God, in Genesis chapter 3, made a promise. The promise was to crush Satan. 
And then just think about that promise and how lost it must have been between Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 11. Remember what has happened in Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. We had a flood that destroyed the whole earth. We had a, we had a man come build an ark to, to persevere and to save God's promise. Then in chapter last week, chapter 11, we see the people of God that God had chosen from to redeem in chapter 6 at the flood. They begin to act in wicked ways again. And then He disperses them all over the place. I just wonder how lost the promise of God became to God's people. And now in Genesis chapter 11, He brings God's people back to His promise and shows them I have a plan to fulfill my promise. And He chose the path Abram was not sitting in his bed at 13 years old and think, man, I can't wait to be the promise. He, he didn't. They weren't thinking about the promises of God at all. We know that because of his dad and where he lived. It's, it's most likely that Abram, because of where he lived and how he grew up, he was a pagan worshiper. So... Abram wasn't sitting in the pasture with all those sheep and thinks, man, I can't wait for the day God's going to use me to fulfill His promise. He was thinking like a 13-year-old boy. They don't think much. Am I right, parents? But God had a plan. And the plan was to choose Abram that Abram would become what? The father of many nations that was going to fulfill His promise to bring about the salvation to the world. That's God's sovereign plan. The second thing we see in God's sovereign plan, or in this genealogy, is this. That there is no one outside of God's sovereign plan. No one. Like I just said, Genesis, this is what it says about uh, Terah, Abram's dad, which tells, gives a little light onto who Abram was. Joshua chapter 24 or verse 2 says this. You can mark this in your Bibles. Joshua said to all the people. So Joshua is standing in front of God's holy people and he says this to God's holy people. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, the great river. Terah, the father of Abraham and neighbor. They served what? Other gods. So here's pagan people worshiping pagan gods. So we can come to this genealogy and think, man, this, this line of people was a holy line of people. They, they, they were the people. They, they had it all together. They must have been righteous people that God would choose their righteousness and through their righteousness would come about a plan. No, we see in this passage, they were a wicked pagan people that had nothing to do with God and wanted nothing to do with God. But we see God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign grace. No one is beyond God's grace and mercy. No one. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're thinking, no matter what you may do, when God wants to sovereignly choose you, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing, you will be chosen by a holy God. In a moment. In a moment. Because God's ways are not our ways. 
God's plans are not our plans. I would never have chosen Terah or Abram to fulfill a promise. Would you? No. Matter of fact, I wouldn't have chosen me. I was an 18-year-old high school, just a bum, basically. That's the easiest way to say it. Tennyson's in the room, so I can't really say what I want to say. But one time she wants to stay in service. Tennyson, that's what's happening when you stay in service. I get to talk about you. She'll learn never to stay in service again. But God in His goodness had set forth a plan in my life. This is what Jeremiah said about the plan that God had for him. Before I was even knit together in my mother's womb, you knew me. Paul says that. Before the the sperm hit the egg, God had a plan for my life. That's true for you. Like you're not here because you had all your stuff going for you. It's not like God is on the playground. I don't know if they do this anymore. But when I was growing up, we stood in a line against the fence and they took two team captains and they chose teams. You know who always got picked first? Not me. I always got picked last. Like, I was the leftovers. Man, he might be able to kick a ball. He can barely run. But I think oftentimes we come and we view God that way. That God sees humanity against the fence line. And he's like, man, that's an all-star. 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 I'm going to take those five all-stars. But the truth is, when you look at how God chooses people, Man, he always chooses the back half of the line, not the front half of the line. Because he wants to show us it's not about you, it's about me. It's about what he can do in and through us. All that we have to do is simply be obedient to the call that's been placed in our life. That's all that Abraham had to do, which is the last and final point. To serve God and to be in God's gracious plan. We must leave what is comfortable to us. We see that in the passage. So here God is. He has chosen Abraham to fulfill his promises. We see God's plan come to fruition through for whatever purposes it says this in verse 31. That Terah and his family went forth together. They left the pagan land. They left. The comfortability of what they were doing. We'll see more next week. But it says this about Abraham. In chapter 12, verse 1. Abraham, I still believe, at this point in his life, was still not following God. Like I think we can come to chapter 12 and think, man, here's a guy that's following the Lord. But if you look at his life, there's a moment that we'll get to next week that he begins to really follow the Lord. I don't believe it's this moment. But all of a sudden, God says, i got a plan for you. I'm going to choose you. I've chosen you to fulfill my plan. 
And it says this about Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse or disown those or dishonor those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in God's sovereignty, in God's grace, He had a plan. And in God's sovereignty, He didn't reach out beyond the wickedness of Abraham. It reached far beyond that to choose Abraham. But Abraham had to respond to the call on his life. You you see, I, I believe so many of us are there. That God has a plan for us. That God has chosen us. But now the flip side of that coin is this. Will we be obedient to God's call on our life? You see, God does all the choosing. God does all the planning. But God never twists our arm to do the obedience part. So yes, there is the sovereignty of God. The choosing, the election of God. But you have to. You have to flip the coin over. There is still the free will of man. I get blamed all the time for for saying it's the election, it's the election, it's the election. It is election first and foremost. But there is the free will of man not to be obedient to God's call on your life. And so Abraham, he had to leave the comforts of his home. He had to leave the comforts of his family. He had to leave the comforts of his gods to choose a God that had already chosen him to walk step by step with him. And now we'll see from this moment on in the life of Abraham, it's the only man to be said this about, Abra- about anyone in the Bible. He was a friend of God. Now it says about no- Moses that he saw God face to face and they talked like friends. But no other man in all the Bible that says he was a friend of God. I believe he was a friend of God because of his obedience to God's call on his life. And so, this passage shows us God has a plan for our life. He has chosen you from the foundations of the world. If you're here today and you have salvation, it's not because of anything you've done, but it's God's sovereignly choosing you. And you're, no one in this room is outside the reach of God's grace. But my great fear for us as this church in particular is how many of us are not walking in obedience to God's plan for our life. Obedience will always cost you comfort. Always. It is not comfortable to walk step by step with the Lord. We see that from every person up until this point in the life of Genesis. When men start being obedient to God, the comforts of the world go away. We look at Noah. He told Noah, build, a, build an ark and get all those animals in there. There goes comfort right out the window. We, we see the call in Abraham's life. Hey, I want to choose you to go and become a father of many nations. What he had to do is leave it all behind to go and follow what God had promised. God didn't lay out what that was going to look like. 
He doesn't lay that out for Moses. He won't lay that out for Isaac. He doesn't lay that out in the future for Joseph. He didn't lay that out for anyone. The only one that gets to see the full picture is Christ. And Christ said, I'll leave the comforts of heaven to go and be uncomfortable to serve you to redeem people. So if Christ Himself can be uncomfortable to be obedient to God, then we're to be little Christ, to be like Him, to leave the comforts of this world to serve a holy God. And so I ask these two questions in closing. First, have you experienced God's sovereign grace in your life? If you're a believer here this morning, the answer to that question is a resounding yes. If you do know, not, not know Christ this morning, the answer is this, no. You have not experienced God's sovereign grace. Common grace, yes. Sovereign grace, no. And so for both the believer and the unbeliever in the room this morning, what or where do you need to leave behind to serve God more faithfully? How do you need to be obedient? For the unbeliever this morning, those who are apart from Christ, the answer starts with your obedience has got to simply be, yes, here I am, Lord. And obey the call that He's calling out to you this morning. For you, the believer, the call to obedience is this. It's got to be what Isaiah says. Whatever you call me to do, send me, I'll go. Send me, I'll go. And would we respond in obedience to that in our lives? You see, genealogies show us a lot of things. But let us never forget, genealogies show us That God has a purpose and a plan for redemption to the whole world. And my prayer is that this, for all of us, that when the genealogy is written about 2,000 years from now, your name, my name, this church's name is written in that genealogy because we want to be inside of God's sovereign grace and plan for redemption. Let us pray this morning. God, you were so good to us. You are so kind to us. You, through Your Holy Word, have mapped out a plan for salvation, a plan for redemption, a plan to establish a kingdom. And You are the great King of this kingdom. You've established the church. And now You're calling people. So I pray that we, Pals Chapel, and the people of Pals Chapel, God, we would see you as king, worship you as that. We would be your people, and we would act in obedience to your call on our life. So God, I pray for those this morning that are apart from you, that have never experienced your your, your grace, your sovereign grace of salvation. I pray this morning through the Holy Spirit, you'd awaken their hearts. You call them to yourself and they respond in obedience to that call. God, I pray for myself and the believers in this room. Your call was to all of us that are believers is what you've told your disciples in Matthew chapter 28 to go and make disciples. God, we are not always faithful to that call. 
I pray that we would be. You would use your people to call forth your name to those who are still lost. And out of the calling, God, and those that are hearing the name of Christ, they would surrender their will and their lives over to you as their Lord and their Savior and their King. Continue to use us, your people, to establish your kingdom. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen.